Hi, and welcome to the East German Fashion History Podcast. Today, we'll be heading into the first half of the 80s from 1980 to 1985. And per usual, first, I'll recap the major themes from last week, then look at highlights for this week, and finally delve into the timeline with a synopsis for each year. There will be no Friday edition of Got a Hot Minute, and next week will be our last week following the chronology of fashion in the GDR. After that, I'll be posting bi-weekly episodes, so twice a month, where I focus on different themes like fashion photography, fashion architecture, fashion and film, all in East Germany. So if you have any research topics you'd like me to explore, you can comment on the blog or DM me on Instagram at scattermyashesataldi or just look for C. Nickel. And I'll have that contact information on the blog for this week posted on Friday. So last week, we looked at the development of the GDR state-owned brand of denim. By 1974, East German state-owned clothing factories were producing denim jeans, but instead of calling them jeans, they dubbed them rivet pants. By 1978, they released new collections of these jeans under brand names like Vizent, Bison, Boxa, Goldfuchs, and Shanti. These all varied in price. For an example, boxer jeans would cost 100 marks, whereas Goldfuchs would cost 120. And, but even in, within that same year, Honecker signs a contract for the purchase of 1 million pair of Levi's jeans to be sold in East Germany. Number two, former Sibylle model Barbara Wandel's personal account, which we looked at, where she talks about being a model at Sibylle and the sense of camaraderie that she felt while working in this industry. Number three, we also reviewed the surveillance state and its relationship to the new editorial directions at Sibylle, which exhibit a growing sense of fantasy. Even though in the 70s, late 70s, late, all through the 70s, late 70s, there was little monitoring of Zabilla, do you really see that the creative direction became ever more inventive with projects like mixed media and painted floral bouquets in the style of great European artists? as well as Utamala's fantastical editorial spread. So it, it begs the question, where is all this dreaminess and escapism, escapism and sen- maybe possible sense of fatalism coming, especially in a surveillance state like East Germany? This week, we'll look at one fashion counterculture and the creative collectives Chic Charmant und Dauerhaft, or Chic, Charming and Lasting, as well as the collective Alalairau, or it's called It's a Thousand Furs, which is based off of a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. Two, we'll look at Exquisite in the 80s and how they're thriving, struggling, surviving. Three, we'll look at the magazine Pramo, or Praktische Mode, of practical fashion, and its egalitarian initiative of pattern making. So, 1980. On a political level, the 80s in the GDR were defined by lavish state-endorsed and promoted ceremonies for various festivals and anniversaries, which was really in sharp contrast to the crisis-ridden state that the German Democratic was actually living through. At the same time, 
American TV shows like the Denver, Denver Clan and Dallas, which also aired in East Germany on Tuesdays at 9.45 p.m., were gaining wild popularity. One could imagine the level of cognitive dissonance East Germans must have felt while watching. On a personal note, I was living in West Germany at the time with my mother, who is American, my father, who was German, and she would have my grandma from Pittsburgh send VHS tapes of the American episodes of Dallas, and I watched this as a kid with her. She still attests to this day that that's probably how I got into fashion. Needless to say, East Germans were watching the same glamorized American shows as West Germans. In the 80s, also, it was, in terms of what was going on at, at Zabilla, Utamala was really defining her look and coming into her own. Her compositions were considered unparalleled. The models communicated the right vibe, and she developed a distinct look that was original, feminine, and lent a certain lightness. Like the idea of elegance, which should be effortless, there was an effortlessness to her conceptual photographs. In the second issue of Zabilla of that year, she publishes Sommerblusen, or Summer Blouses. And she uses a rather ethereal photograph to promote a blouse pattern. It's a simple white button-down with a thin reverse notch collar and large patch pocket and gathered yoke at the shoulder. And simple plain white blouse. This is really just for a pattern. And you see the model standing in thigh deep in a lake gazing off into the distance while squeezing out her hair, which is in a high ponytail and styled with a polka dotted headband to complement her black shorts. The styling is rather straightforward, a, a, a bit cheeky, but there's nothing really special. And there's nothing really special about this white blouse pattern. However, it's the background that really captures everything. It sets a stage for an ethereal fashion fantasy. You see this elegant gradation of grays fading into an abyss of fog. And there's really something otherworldly about this photograph. It's almost like looking at an Alfred Stieglitz. And this cover is just for a pattern, mind you, not to remind you again, but um, it's, it's really beautiful photography given its simple initiative or objective. And for this for this image and for a comparison of this to the to Alfred Stieglitz, I'll check out the blog posts on Friday. Now another big part of Zabilla were their biopics of notable women in the GDR who built successful careers or had special talents. And we saw with their series Frau von Heute, Woman of Today in the early 60s and into the late 60s, they would feature dignitaries, functionaries, and successful female engineers, lawyers and doctors, party leaders. However, in the 80s, it totally switches the program, and it's now renamed, or it's named Sibylla Introduces. And it features artists and dancers, performers of the, of, from the creative field, and it shows them in a very glamorized, glamorized light with these large-scale photographs. For an example, they 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 promote. They have a, 
biopic about Renate Kresna. She's an actress, and they feature her against a large neoclassical building at night with that's been lit with fuchsia and blue lighting while she's wearing this shimmering pantsuit. So these portraits are no longer modest, but quite glamorized and with a much more fashion-focused aesthetic. Now at the time, Exquisite, the store, the luxury store boutique we've been talking about, continues to sell high-end imports and GDR design clothes, shoes, accessories, and their own makeup line throughout East Germany. Their collections can be largely accredited to Hannelore Gabrielle. She was their head designer. Gabrielle studied illustration at the Kunsthochschule in Weissensee, or the Weissensee School of Art. That's where a lot of the photographers from Zabilla came from, and much of their editorial team. And in the 70s, she worked at the German Fashion Institute in Berlin's knitwear department. By 1980, she was a sportswear and leisurewear designer at the VHB Exquisite Berlin. That's the factory that produces Exquisite's pieces. And she even went on to design looks in collaboration with the Bauhaus Dessau for the 1984 Winter Olympics in Sarajevo. So concluding 1980, Utamala comes into her own at Sibylle Handelore Gabrielle. Gabrielle works as a leisurewear designer at VHB Exquisite Berlin, and crumbling East Germany is overwhelmed by state indoor celebrations while watching the glamour, pomp, and allure of American shows like Dallas. 1981. So continuing with Zibilla, um, they in, in Utamala introduces in her first in her in the second issue of that year a feature about Jutta Deutschland. She's a ballerina and she's shown casually posing against a bench at a train station and performing an arabesque at a Trabant on a quiet street in Prenzlauer Berg. And it's interesting to note that she's wearing most likely clothes promoted by the German Fashion Institute, standing there like any other citizen, but in her ballet point, show, point shoes. So images to that are on the blog. At this time, Monika Oppel, who start, starts at Sibylla to work as a fashion editor, and just a little about her own experience from her own wor words. She says that as a fashion editor at Sibylla, there was really a relaxed atmosphere that was intellectually fluid, and there really wasn't any real hierarchy. From, She says that from Margot Fanstiel, she had learned that when you were photographing, when you were showing a woman in a dress, it wasn't about the dress, it was the woman in the dress. And that it was really also, it was about clothes, but it was also about dreams. It was about how you carried yourself and your character. And that was really part of the, the beauty ideal. Whereas if you look at many or any 80s magazine in the West, you had these akimbo poses, these dramatic contrapposto postures. So you definitely see a difference in what, what ideals were. So in terms of major historical changes happening around the world that East Germans are witnessing at this time, Lady Di marries Prince Charles. 
Miami Vice becomes a hit TV show and superstars like Bruce Springsteen tour the Europe and West Germany. The punk movement gains footing among the youth, especially in East Germany. And the motto, rather blue hair than blue shirt, appeals to the younger generation of GDR citizens. Now, much of what Exquisite and Intershop offer tries to keep up with these international trends, which are neatly influenced by events, world events and pop culture. And as we reviewed before, Exquisite, which was founded in 1962 by the Council of Ministers and the SED to improve the state of supply and demand, but specifically to provide luxury fashion and for the GDR citizen, we really um, see how they're trying to intrinsically work with the demands of these world events while working within a state planned economy. Much of what the store had to offer, even into the 80s, was still expensive, but that's how it was designed. It was for the fashion forward urbanite with a median or higher income. And, but even students would pay 190 mark for a pair of shoes because shopping ex- and exquisite was considered a, a rather emotionally satisfying experience compared to shopping at the ha'u or the consument, the, or ordering on the consument, which is the mail order catalog. One small example, but one that really inst- illustrates that feeling of luxury you would get shopping at exquisite was instead of having to bring everyone's own indispensable Dederon shopping bag you carried with you everywhere. You got a beautifully stylishly branded plastic bag to carry your exquisite clothes in. So it's really seen as a, as a Luxus label. So concluding 1981, while Lady Di and Prince Charles marry, East Germany also experiences the punk revolution, which we'll talk more about uh, Monica Oppel joins Zibille, and the focus on influential women in the GDR now turns to artists. Exquisite tries to keep up with the zeitgeist. 1982. Carla Wodak becomes the editor-in-chief at Zibille, marking a change in direction. In the fifth issue of that year, feature the feature Young Junge Leute, or Young People, features youths or younger people in quote younger fashions and this was really a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the German Fashion Institute in and the photographs were by Christian Böschart. Exquisite despite all of its tribulations and a few triumphs continues to lead the way as your go-to for trending fashion now the majority of the goods offered were GDR design and produce. The VHB Exquisite at this point includes six production companies employing up to 30 fashion designers who would create collections for each season and present it to the Leipziger Messe or Leipziger Convention. What was successful would be produced in small numbers, rarely more than a thousand. And just a quick side note, Dorothea Melles, who was the editor we'd been talking about in the, in the 50s and mostly 60s of Zabilla, was now at, at Exquisite Designing. 
In terms of imports, Exquisite um, did have a lot of imports from Western countries such as Austria, Italy, France, and Japan. And this devoured the largest share of foreign currency, which is why all sample models were subjected to the stringent tests for saleability, load bearing capacity, fit before they went on the line. So still very bureaucratic in terms of their structure. In terms of occasion wear, however, there wasn't much variety for the average GDR citizen at that time. Now let's take a look at an account from, her name is Elizabeth A. A. from Radeboil. So she marks, she remarks she was getting married and had to look for a wedding dress, but there were only three different styles available in all shops in Dresden and elsewhere. When she went to Exquisite, she found a beautiful dress, the ultimate dream, but it ended up costing a thousand mark, which was two months of her income. So even though you did have some variety at Exquisite, it was these occasion dresses like wedding dresses where it was really hard to come by something you'd really love unless you make it yourself. Concluding 1982, Sibylla celebrates the German Fashion Institute's 30th anniversary with a highlight to the young people and their young fashions, quote, exquisite continues to keep up with the trends, balancing both domestic design with international imports, but still there is a greater need for variety as told by the GDR citizen Elizabeth A, who was looking, who was on the hunt for wedding dress. 1983. So another major magazine besides Zabilla that we really haven't focused on the, on this podcast that I'd, I'd like to really dive into and now is a great opportunity was Pramo or Praktische Mode, Practical Fashion. It was a monthly magazine and it really reached a broad circle of readers outside of those that were just interested in fashion. It was really for seamstresses who wanted to refine and improve their wardrobe. It was seen as it was really seen as as a way to encourage, not to encourage, but really your your best alternative not only for fashion forward clothing, but for clothing for your own family for your family year round, especially children. And I have a, spe- a special ac- uh, an account from Hanna Helbig, who was a fashion editor at Praktische Mode. And while she trained as a chemical engineer, she ended up pursuing a career in fashion by she ended up doing secondary training at a technical school for fashion design. And she says that when Helbig was beginning at Pramo, there really wasn't even a title for fashion editor. Rather, she was called a magazine processor. That was the closest translation I could find and come up with, I, honestly. But her job was quite interesting because she was really more of an executive coordinator. She would meet biannually with the Fashion Institute about the latest trends and fabrics. Parallel to this, she would work alongside the garment industry about available fabrics. Helbig also notes that she would do photo shoots that weren't even called photo shoots. They were called a photo action or a photo action, a photo project. Now let's take a look at some of this, the themes that you'll find on cover pages for each year, for each issue to give you really a feel of, you know, what their focus was. 
So you had the first issue was the first issue of 1983 was all about carnival fashion and carnival costumes and folklore style. Then you had the fourth issue was about vacation clothes for the beach. And, you know, all the way up into the ninth issue of that year was it was called, quote, classic for every type. And this really just features a Chanel style suit. So white blouse, black blazer with some jewelry ornamenting it. And obviously this didn't say it was imitating the Chanel suit of 83, but it was heavily inferred. And this Chanel look, fun fact, was a big style that you would find throughout the throughout the East Block and you'd find patterns for a Chanel style black blaze or Chanel style boucle suit throughout the East Block. And Plamo really provided, I think it would provide many people the best alternative if you couldn't afford exquisite and a lot most people couldn't because it was it was less fashion forward. It was less of a cultural magazine. It was less high highbrow. It was really for the hobbyist and everyday women really trying to make ends meet. If you didn't want to have the hassle of finding clothes through the HO department stores like Centrum or rummage through Biva, Billige Waren, which was for cheap goods and discount clothing, this was your best option. And again, up until the late 80s, if you were going to these large state-owned department stores, you were going to have, it's going to be a hard time to find what you were looking for. And that's where you, why you had a lot of people, uh, Hamstako, if you had a lot of people hoarding, buying a lot of of something that you know you didn't really need so Plamo was really a great solution for that and sewing was a great solution for that well into the 80s as we had seen in the 70s so concluding 1983 while Zabilla was really selling dreams and celebrating East German fashion arts and culture and successful women in the arts Plamo was promoting dress and style but for a more egalitarian and affordable angle, that was a reality for most women in East Germany. 1984. In Zabila's first issue of the year, they released the editorial, one of my favorites, and it'll be posted to the blog, called Sachliche Mode, or Fashion as the Object, the Object of Fashion. And this features work from the photographer Ulrich Wüst. Much of his work included architectural elements, and this theme is ever present in Sachliche Mode. It features not only models in clothes, but abstractified black and white photographs with architectural elements, like a lamppost fading in the distance, or a corner shot of a bay window lit up on a dark street, producing hard lines and shadows. And all of these abstract architectural images are really to complement a model wearing a blouse and a pant that is actually just a pattern. Again, like the white blouse, this is really just promoting pattern and pattern making. And like Utamala, this is done in his distinctly artful way. He was really known for a very Bauhaus, high modernist, really architectural elements that he, he loved. And you could see this coming through in this promotion for patterns of just tops and tops, pants, and jumpsuits. 
Another big event that happened is fine is chic charmant und dauerhaft. So chic, chic, charming and lasting. And this is the the iconic East German counterculture fashion countercultural collective that throws their unofficial first show in an East Berlin train station, the Ostbahnhof. And CCD didn't really, you know, wasn't just fashion, it was an expression, it was a way of life. Their existence and lifestyle was also really evidence to an increasingly anarchic appearance and mood that you would find in Prenzlauer Berg in Berlin. Many of the people in CCD were relatively well-connected to the East German fashion industry after modeling for Zabilla or working, having, some, having some working relationship, having gone or worked at the German Fashion Institute. A lot of their photographers, we'll get into one next week, who was a big part of that scene. They were also relatively well off having worked a lot in the black market and even got you know, a lot of West German passes. So they had a lot of privilege in that, in that way. The, another big aspect of this is you had um, Alalairau, which was another performance, another performance creative collective. And a lot of the pieces from Alalairau, which was a huge fashion show, it was a three-day it was a three-day show that happened in 1989 are you can still find um at the german history museum today because they're considered um, valuable like german cultural property so concluding 1984 as Zibilla photographers like ulrich wust continue to lend their own unique style to otherwise to otherwise basic photographs promoting patterns and pattern making CCD and this countercultural fashion movement that rebelled against the GDR f- throws its first unofficial fashion show. So, 1985, fashion of the GDR was colorful and bold. Zabilla was coming under scrutiny from the government. While the fashion while fashion subcultures were thriving and alternative living styles like communes were a thing. So at this time, you had, there was, at Zabilla, there was a directive from Inge Lange, Ingeborg Lange. She was one of the few women to reach the high echelons of the country's power structure. And she really wanted to, quote, develop a full cultural style of clothing in the socialist society that is more suitable and contributes to the specific means of fashion for development of socialist personalities. So this is her whole initiative, and she she starts to sort of censor and look at Sibylla more critically. Less than a month later than this, she releases a statement saying that much of their editorial department was witness to, uh, quote, having an insufficient technical knowledge, ideological ambiguity and superficiality, and also of a, quote, excessive overestimation, narrow-mindedness, and lack of political responsibility. Now that's a burn. Erika Bleza 
from the Office of Industrial Design, who initially released this statement, went on to further purpose that the, quote, employees of the region have to assume that they don't know what fashion is and who makes it, or they are so confused that you are no longer able to formulate clear thoughts. Wow. On January 12th of 1985, Inge Lange writes a letter to the Publishing House for Women, as well as Zibilla's editor-in-chief, Carla Wura, asking editors to, quote, continue working on gaining new insights corresponding to higher requirements in order to clarify ideological view of an ideal, a better ideological view. Moreover, Inga and her influential group of women in higher ranks, this also included Honaka's wife, Margot, believed that the photographers had become too powerful, stating that, quote, fashion photography must not become self-reliant, and stating that Zibilla missed the mark on, quote, taste and its socialist mandate, and diagnoses them as having individualism currently, individualism is currently prevailing throughout the magazine. Now, after all this back and forth, oddly, nothing comes with any, there was, there was no real consequence that, that Sibylla had met even after this harsh criticism. By the middle of the 80s, the communication and collaboration with the East and West was, was becoming stronger. And another popular trend in addition to this was living in communes. So you had the Zabilla model, Miriam Peet, who had in one issue appeared 13 times, who would live in a collective, who lived in a collective commune in Kreuzberg. Kreuzberg now in Berlin is uh, highly gentrified by the way. So just, just a fun fact there. But she was considered East Berlin's equivalent to Ushi Obermeier. Ushi Obermeier was a total um, sex symbol for West Germany and was sort of considered West Germany's own supermodel. But Miriam Piet, she, like many others, preferred to live in these bohemian communes, much like a lot of the artists and creatives of East Germany's CCD, Shikshamant, and Dauerhof, which we're going to talk about. Now, at the same time, um, you have uh, the West German newspaper Spiegel wrote about life in Kreuzberg, which the author Marie-Louise Scherre describes as, quote, a woman could look hot here, wear a coat from an endangered animal, and have gold on her eyelids. So interesting, conflicting notions of, not notions, but sources in terms of what they were seeing in Kreuzberg. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to focus on the CCD and their everyday lives and their cultural impact on the history of East German fashion. Now to give you a taste on how radical the style of CCD was, and you can view this on my previous blog post about the, the exhibition catalog in Grenzenfrei dedicated to CCD. We're going to take a look at the co-founder of CCD's own words. Sabine, her name is Sabine von Oettingen. And she described her own life as, quote, aesthetics of morbidity. Really gothic and dark and quite fascinating works that she did. 
Um, one of the photographers of the CCD movement, Robert Paris, he was the son of Helga Paris, whose living room Zabina would use as a studio, said that she did this and she she had these these radical ideas um, and these radical visuals because it was for her a way of living through the freedoms and aspirations she so yearned. So she would live through them by performing them. At the same time, the West German media was really starting to look at and pick up on the impact and influence of the CCD. In fact, a West German radio station, Deutschlandfunk Kultur, reports that the CCD scene in Prenzlauer Berg remarked remarked it being, quote, in the middle of the gray GDR world, you'll find the creatives from Alalairau and a little piece of fun from the GDR. Now, in terms of how creatives from underground fashion collectives like the CCD and the Alalairau subsisted while living on the fringes, possibly in communes in Prenzlauer Berg, like the model Miriam Pete we talked about, well, they did make, while a lot of them did work in the fashion industry, so they had access to a lot of raw materials and raw materials to make clothes, they also made a lot of money on the black market. For perspective, in 1985, you only really needed 300 to 400 marks to subsist on, and you could easily make quick money on the black market doing so. Angelica Kroka, who was a part of the Alalairau collective, recalls that, quote, my friend needed golf supplies, which I needed two weeks to make. This costed 40,000 East marks at the time, which was a lot of money. So she probably made a killing making all of his golf supplies for two weeks and not for that amount. Um, she also goes on to say, you could quickly make, you could easily make quick money by sewing t-shirts, which in the GDR were called Nikki's. That would be bought, that would be bought on the Oranienburger flea market and, or on the Baltic Sea. Dresses and jackets out of cotton diaper material were also sewn and sold on the black market. It was easy cash. The demand was high, but for a tailor, a seamstress, you could make your monthly income, you could make the monthly income of a university docent. Prosecco, gas, or zect as it's called, Prosecco, gas, and a good mood could all be paid for. Sabina von Oettingen, CCD founder, commented, she quote, we sewed everything that we could, even harness bags. And she says that for the non-conforming intellectual, leather fashion was booming. Even the CCD crew started sewing everything they could from jackets to pants and coats out of leather. And these materials you would get directly sourced from the producer. So while the group made clothes, accessories, and products out of raw leather, it's because many of them also worked day jobs in the fashion textile industry and had access to it. So this is a very unique privilege they have. And they would be designing and selling a lot of clothes that, you know, on the black market that weren't available anywhere, especially you wouldn't find this in, in your mail order catalog. You wouldn't find this at the Ha'o's department store, uh, Centrum. 
So concluding 1985, Sibylla comes under, in, under investigation for their individualistic attitudes with recommendations to improve their publication, that is, to better represent a socialist personality, but nothing really comes of it. The fashion industry of the black market is an ever lucrative business, especially for people who work in the industry, especially for those, especially for those who are part of the underground fashion culture, CCD or a la Lairao. And the CCD and other creative collectives really become the subject, a subject of fascination for the West, almost fetishistic in a way. So next week, we'll talk more about the CCD, punk, the photographer Sven Makvat, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that's it for today. And I know that was a lot. So thanks for sticking through it. I'd like to really give a special thanks and shout out to my mom, Lori Nickel, for all of her unconditional love and support. And as always, my aunt, who has always been my mentor, inspiration, and intellectual aspiration. Danke, and I'll see you next week.